The Apostle Paul writing says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Do you know someone who acts like they're God's gift to mankind? Usually they have an inflated ego and wildly overestimate their contribution to the world around them. Not usually pleasant to be around. Paul has been describing the wealth of our salvation as Christians and our membership in the body of Christ. And moving through this letter, we find ourselves tonight in a curious position because on the one hand, he just finished saying that we should be humble, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, that we should always be orienting ourselves to the needs of others, and that's all true. But then tonight he explains that you, you specifically, are God's gift to the church and to mankind by extension. Now, this knowledge shouldn't result in human arrogance. It should result in heavenly activity. Paul alluded to this this thing God does with his people, making them a gift for others. He alluded to it back in chapter 3, where he talked about his own life, his own calling, uh, his own uh, walk with the Lord, and how God had given him all this grace as a gift on behalf of the Gentiles. He said, listen, God has given me as a gift to you. He said, it was on your behalf, my imprisonment, the mysteries revealed to me, my preaching in Ephesus. It's all part of God's gracious gifting to you. If you're a member of the body of Christ, meaning if you're a Christian, you are a special part in God's plan. You are a specifically tailored gift prepared for the benefit of the church at large. So let's take a look at these verses. Verse 7 says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we've been learning about how we are part of a great unified cosmic work that God accomplishes through history. But that doesn't mean that he thinks of you as just another cog in his machine. Or he doesn't think of you as just some worker ant carrying your leaf around, right? Uh, If you have ants at your house or have been a human being and never been around ants, uh, you notice that, you know, ants are doing all their stuff. It's very organized. There's lots of, you know, individual ants doing things. But the queen, she doesn't care when a few of her workers get stepped on, right? She doesn't know about it. She doesn't care about it. Those workers are immediately replaced and forgotten because they're ants. But that's not how God thinks about you. That's not his mindset toward his people. Even though the Bible has been talking about this great unfolding cosmic work that stretches through human history and not just on the earth, it reaches all the way up to the powers and the principalities in the heavens. God doesn't think of you as just a drone or or just a cog or just a number in his work. Uh, Verse 7 brings out the distinct specificity of God's plan and your place in it. 
The New Living Translation brings us verse 7 this way. He has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. And scholars will talk about how the language is talking about a specific special gift for you and for me individually. There is no Christian who God does not give a special personalized gift for their life. Uh, God's God's, uh, uh, blessing his people is not buffet style, right? I forget where I was. I was was commiserating with the close of Sizzler years ago, right? And how when I was a kid, man, going to Sizzler, that was the tops and you go to those trays and you get all the dino chicken nuggets and you get the million hour old square pieces of, of like round table pizza and you're getting, I got the ham cubes all the time. Who even knows how old those were? But it was like the best thing ever, just buffet style, like we were hogs at a trough, right? But, and I was always confused when I saw adults ordering ordering an entree at the front at Sizzler, right? I want a steak, and I want it cooked this way. And I was like, that's crazy. Don't you want ham cubes and round table, <laughs> and round table pizza? But uh, so, you know, God is not, is not gifting us buffet style. Uh, it's not out of the leftover bin. It's handcrafted, designed for you, full of his thought and his care and his, his, his intentions for you. Now, why does God gift us? He gifts us for the common good of the church and for the common good of the world through the work of the church, but specifically for the building up of the church. He gifts you and I so that we can bless others and edify the body of Christ, build it up. That's the message, not only of Ephesians 4, which we're going through tonight, but it's the message of Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4. In 1 Peter 4, the apostle Peter says, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others. And in those passages, we find there are all sorts of different gifts, all sorts of different things God wants to do through the lives of his people, different activities that enhance our lives for sure, but are primarily for the benefit of others. And they're given out of God's grace, we're told in all of these passages. We think of the wonderful generosity of God's saving grace, right? And of course, that is the primary thing that every human being needs is the saving grace of God to save us not only from sin, not only from guilt, not only from shame, but to save us from death forever and ever. That's saving grace. And Paul talked a lot about the saving grace of God, how powerful it is, how comprehensive it is, how great it is in the opening chapters of this book. But not only is there saving grace poured out from heaven to earth for us, there's also serving grace. And the serving grace that God pours out in our lives is just as powerful, just as loving, just as precious as God's grace that washes away our sin, right? It, it's, it all comes from the same storehouse, and it's all part of God's same love and power and plan, but it's the saving grace and the serving grace to, to do all of these things in and through our lives for our benefit and the benefit of others. When God gives a gift, it's not according to your ability. What did Karl Marx teach? From each according to his ability to each according to his needs. And you know what? If you don't have ability, you've got problems when Karl Marx is in charge, right? But that's not how God operates. He doesn't give based on what I bring to the table because I don't bring anything to God's table other than sin that he has to deal with. He gives out of 
his own love. He gives out of his own grace. He gives based off of the measurement of Christ's gift, this verse says. He gives from the stores of his own grace. And in chapter 3, we were told that God's riches are incalculable, unfathomable. You can't get to the end of them. And in chapter 1, we were told, told that when God pours out his gifts on us, uh, his strength and his peace and his love, it's lavishly, it's overflowing, it's, it's more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so the picture is this, as you walk with God, remember we're in this whole section where Paul is talking about how we walk worthy. All of these things that have been revealed as true in chapters one through three are now put into operation in our lives in chapters four through six. And so as we walk with God, you are overflowed with his matchless, lavish grace so that you can experience and do all that he has for you. Verse 8 says, For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people. Commentators and scholars spend a lot of pages arguing about verses 8 through 13. There is disagreement over just about every phrase along the way. Sometimes they can't even agree on how many disagreements there are and how many perspectives you can have. It's kind of a funny thing. Who are the captives? What is meant by ascended and descended? How far does the dissension go? Are pastors and teachers one group or two groups or a group within another group? And they just write and write and write about all these things. And that's, that's fine. It's good to talk through these things and study and get different perspectives uh, but we're going to largely bypass the controversy. But if you go and study, you know, this passage and look into commentaries, you're going to see this section explodes with all sorts of linguist, uh, you know, arguments and things like that. The main controversy, though, is in verse 8, right here. And it is worth mentioning because when we read it, it looks like the Apostle Paul has purposefully misquoted a scripture that he's referencing. In your Bible, you undoubtedly have a little note telling you that Paul is quoting Psalm 68, 18. The problem is, if that's true, then Paul has made five minor and two major changes to that verse, like changing them straight, straight across. It, it's, it's, it's a problem. For example, the easiest problem, if you turned over to Psalm 68, 18, you would see that that verse does not say that God gave gifts to people, but that he received gifts from people. Now, messing with scripture is a big no-no, even if you're an apostle. Paul said, hey, if I or anybody else or an angel comes down and gives you a different gospel or messes with the word of God, don't listen to that person. Let them be accursed. You don't add or take away from the word of God. In fact, Paul had warned these Ephesians and the elders there, before, you know, the last time he saw them a number of years before this letter was written. He said, hey, be, be, be on guard. Watch out because false teachers are going to come in and they're going to distort the truth, speaking about the gospel and the word of God. Peter also warned about people twisting the scriptures. Okay, so what's going on here? Is Paul get a pass? What's happening? Some say he was quoting an early hymn. Some say he was quoting a traditional paraphrase influenced by rabbinic tradition. Some suggest, I love this one, some suggest that Paul just remembered the verse wrong. And the Holy Spirit was like, we're going to let it slide. You know what? I've got a lot of other proofreading to do. This guy's writing this over here. Just, we'll just, it's fine. All right, I love that one. 
we don't know exactly, because Paul's not here to explain it to us, uh, what we know is that every word of the Word of God is inspired and profitable for life and for godliness. And so uh, the most reasonable explanation given by reasonable scholars is that Paul is not specifically quoting Psalm 68, 18, but that he's summarizing the whole psalm altogether. And, and if you take that perspective on what he's saying, it does fall into place. Because, for example, at the end of Psalm 68, we're told that God gives gifts to his people in addition to receiving gifts from them. And so um, it's not a problem. Paul's absolutely in line with the message of Psalm 68 and what the Holy Spirit inspired David to write there. So don't worry about that. And if someone ever says, you know, here's what's happening, you just, you don't have to worry that there's some huge problem that no one's ever noticed before <laughs> in the Bible. The important idea in both Psalm 68 and in Paul's usage of this psalm, is that Christ is king. He is absolutely victorious over all enemies. He has total power and authority to rule this universe according to his will. And his will is not only to rule, but to share his inheritance with his people. Encourage you to later tonight or or tomorrow, uh, put Psalm 68 on uh, on your audio Bible and have a listen to it and get excited about what God is capable of and what his heart is toward his people. In verse 8, we see Christ victorious in a triumphal parade. In the Roman Empire, after a great military victory or at the end of a great military campaign, they would often host a celebration parade called a triumph. In a triumph, the commander would lead the parade wearing a crown and a purple garment and a four-horse chariot. Behind him came his army, his captives, and the spoils of war. And so this is the image we see. Christ, the king, the conqueror, in total triumph, leading this parade. Are the captives of verse 8 Satan and his minions, forever defeated? Or are the captives us, those who were once enslaved to sin, doomed to die, now liberated by the king of kings? Uh, Both are realities of what Christ has accomplished, of his triumph over sin and death. We are his plunder, right? We are bought by the blood of Christ. We were wrenched from the grip of sin and death and ushered into the kingdom of righteousness. We who were once rebel enemies are now brought in as citizens and sons and daughters. uh, And and we are his plunder, right? We are the apple of his eye. Uh, us and the nation of Israel, beloved by God in special ways. Now, there's a sweet thing here where we read, he took captives captive. The words can be translated, he captured a catch. You are a catch in God's eyes, right? We sometimes hear that. Maybe that's an old-timey term, but that person, oh, he's a catch. She's a catch, right? God looks at you and he says, you are a catch in his eyes. He loves you so much. He's so excited about you. You are the pearl of great price in that parable where, where the, the, that individual who stands in for God, he sold everything so that he could get that field so that he could get that pearl. And that is you. He gave everything. He poured out his blood, bled, bled out so that he could catch you. You are worth all God has to offer to make his own as far as he is concerned. He catches you with his love. He gifts you with gifts and then gifts you as a gift to others. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? 
The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. Uh, Paul is speaking about Christ here. The scholars argue about who he's, who he's, who he's even talking about. But uh, in chapter 1, Christ is very clearly identified as the one who fills all things. Why did Jesus descend to earth? Uh, and where did he descend to? In this verse, what is it talking about? Where did he descend to? Well, not to hell. Uh, Jesus did not suffer in the lake of fire. There are some religious traditions that kind of have this floating around in the background where it's like, well, after Jesus died on the cross, he then went to hell because he had to suffer for sin there. That's not true. Uh, if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, you know that it says Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Uh, that's an unfortunate rendering of the words because it gives the wrong impression that Christ did suffer in what we think of as hell, the lake of fire. That's not what hell means uh, in, the, in the Apostles' Creed. In the Bible, there are different terms for what might be generally called the underworld or the abode of the dead. There is, in the Old Testament, Sheol, which is just the grave, meaning the, the realm of the dead. In the New Testament, we have terms like Gehenna, which is what we identify as the lake of fire, uh, which we think of as hell. When we think of a person is going to uh, inhabit hell for all eternity, that's what we're talking about, Gehenna, the lake of fire. There's also Hades, very important term and place in the New Testament. It's a place where the dead but not yet resurrected people go or used to go. It was divided into two parts, one for the righteous, one for the wicked. The, the side that was designated for the wicked is a place of torment. The side designated for the righteous was called Abraham's bosom. It's also identified as paradise. Since Jesus' death and resurrection, the side that was called paradise, Abraham's bosom, the good side is empty. The other side is still inhabited by the wicked dead, but not yet resurrected. After his crucifixion, Jesus went to the good side of Hades. It's called paradise. Remember what he said to the thief beside him on the cross? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so when we talk about Jesus descending, or if you see in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to hell, the term that was used in yesteryear was Hades, and unfortunately it's been brought in English as hell. Hope that clears a couple things up. But why did Jesus descend from heaven? And, and since he came and was the God-man and resurrected and hung out on the earth for a while, why did he ascend back to heaven? Wouldn't it be better for him to just be hanging out on the earth in power with us here and now doing all of the things and telling people, hey, I'm Jesus, here's what's going on, I'm in charge now and I'm immortal and I'm the God-man, you know, wouldn't that be better? Well, one day he is going to do that. It's called the millennial kingdom. Uh, we're headed towards that reality. But first, Jesus ascended and he ascended to sit at the right hand of God above all the heavens and he has done these things so that he can save mankind, so he can bridge the gap, so that he can reconcile us to God. There's such a wide separation between holy God and sinful man. We have no hope, no future, unless God himself closes the gap. That's why Jesus had to come. Out of love, he came down, made a way, provides a path for us to everlasting life, and now prepares a place for us in eternity. 
Uh, we're going to inhabit eternity. If you're a Christian, you're going to inhabit eternity in heaven. And Jesus says, hey, I'm ascending to heaven. One of the reasons I'm going to do that is so that I can send the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be great. You're going to have a great time with him. And then when you come to heaven, you're going to realize that I've been up here preparing a place for you. And so lots of good reasons for the Lord to ascend, and he is going to return again one day to earth bodily and establish his kingdom. And right now, his long-suffering waits so that more and more people can be saved. That's been his whole goal, to save souls, to save people's lives and give them everlasting life so that they uh, don't have to go to the lake of fire uh, at the end of human history. Sometimes it's hard for us to get up off the couch for the ones we love, isn't it? Bah. Right? That's human. That's human nature. But oh, the things God has done for you and for me. God descending from heaven itself, coming to a devastated earth, becoming the God-man Uh, subjecting himself to life in the first century, subjecting himself to the sufferings and the betrayals and death on a cross, descending into the grave, defeating death and sin forever. Why? So that we can be saved from guilt. The things he has done for you, the things he has done for me, all out of love. He did the impossible. And now he continues to work to fill all things. He's not done working. He did all of this incredible work, unfathomable in its its difficulty and in its thanklessness in many ways and in, in, you know, in all of the suffering and everything like that. And then he, he, he completed his work. It is finished. He died on the cross. He was scourged. He was put into the grave. He was resurrected. And now he's not done. He says, I'm going to keep working on your behalf. I'm going to keep filling all things. And that's God's plan. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He said, through Christ, we're going to fill all things with him. Having gotten back to heaven after his ascension, he didn't hang a sign on his office door that said, gone fishing. It says, still filling, right? He's just, he's out there still doing his work on your behalf, still actively pouring out his love and grace for you. And so the question is, are you filled? God wants to fill your life. Jesus wants to be king of your heart and fill your heart and and operate this powerful, gracious salvation in and through you. And so are you filled? Are you reconciled with the Savior? Are you on the path that leads to life? There's only two paths in life. You either go to the Father, go to heaven because of Jesus Christ, or you reject Jesus Christ, and then you have to go to where the devil is going. You know, hell wasn't created for human beings. It was created for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell, but he's not going to stop you from going there if you reject Jesus Christ and say, I won't go your way. I won't believe. I won't accept you as my substitute. I won't acknowledge you as Savior and King. I want to be God over my life. I want to try to do more good than bad. I want to do whatever. And the Lord says, okay, well, then you have to go to the other location, which was made for the devil and his angels. I spent all of this time and effort and worked through human history providentially in countless ways to save you from going there. But if you're determined to not spend eternity with me, well, you're a free moral agent and I'm not going to force you. And so uh, are you on the path that leads to life? Paul reveals here not only the selfless love of God, but also his singular power. 
when it talks about this ascending, descending. You see, in the Roman mind, there was always a tenuous balance of power between the gods. Gods didn't really like each other very much. They didn't necessarily like human beings very much. Sometimes the gods would invade, in Roman mythology, they would invade the earth and do weird stuff. Uh, for example, in Roman mythology, the god Hades, there's a, they said a god who ruled the underworld, his name was Hades. And according to their mythology, one time Hades, he was lonely. It's a drag to be the god of the underworld, apparently. And so he came to the overworld, he came to the earth to kidnap Persephone, the daughter of Zeus. And then the result was famine for mankind. I don't know, where, what, what do we do? I don't know, we didn't do anything, right? And so... That was kind of the cultural mind for an average Roman. And remember, this is Ephesus. Most of these people came out of straight-up paganism, idolatry, polytheism, weirdness. And so Paul's cutting through all of that, and he says, listen, this is the deal. There is an underworld, but it's not what your mythology teaches. It's probably not what you're thinking. There's one God, not a bunch of gods. He rules everything. There's no corner of the universe that is uh, untouched by his power or by his rule. He descended from heaven. He ascended back to heaven. Nothing can stop him. There's no instability of his power. There's no question that his abode is going to be invaded and he's going to be overthrown or that you know his, his cosmic son is going to be kidnapped and dragged down into Hades, anything like that. In fact, Paul's saying Jesus' resurrection and ascension proves once and for all that he is exactly who he said he was and that he is right now at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning forever and ever. So his selfless love, his singular power all packaged up here. Verse 11, and he himself, Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So we sometimes refer to these as offices in the church, but let's remember how Paul has been describing things. He wants us to think about the church as a body. Every Christian is a member of this body, and this body has all sorts of parts and purposes and functions meant to work together. And so Paul uses this list as an example of some of the gifts God gives to his people, the church. It's not a comprehensive list. There are other lists like this in other parts of the New Testament, and we see that they're not always exactly the same. It's not a comprehensive list. Where are the deacons? Where are the elders? Where are the miracles? Where's the gifts of hospitality? It's not a, a total list. And it's not to meant to be a rigid list. Instead, we think of the organs of a body, right? He's just talking about our individual function in the greater whole of the unified body of Christ. That's the section we're in. And so think of organs of the body. Each one has a special function. Each one has a special design. It must be integrated into the whole, though, in order to work properly. You know, we may have great affection for the heart, but the heart is of no use if you have no lungs, right? Uh, The lungs are of no use if you have no liver. Each is needful and special and works with its own ability, but then part of the harmonious whole, everything working together. And that's the overall message of this whole section of the letter. We should note that everyone on Paul's list that he listed here is involved in proclaiming the word of God right? They did a lot of other things too, but it's always about the proclamation of the Word of God. And so we must always, always, always come back to that. It's such a, an important thing. The world needs a lot of help. Our fellow Christians need a lot of help. 
practical help and logistical help, of course. But we have to always come back to the primacy of the preaching of the Word of God. That is the greatest activity we can be involved in. That is the greatest medicine, the greatest activity in general that the church can be involved in. So that doesn't mean that we don't do uh, ministries of compassion or that we don't do tangible, you know, sort of like feeding people kinds of things, but we can't ever walk away from the proclamation of the word. We have to be people of the word who proclaim the word because it is the power of God for salvation. Paul's list isn't comprehensive. It also isn't mutually exclusive. Paul could be described by every one of the titles he listed. And then this is important. It's not something that you pick like a major in college. It is Christ who gives these gifts, these people, to the church. It's his decision. It's his design. It's his determination. You do not pick your calling. You hear a calling and answer the call and walk worthy of the call. And so we see all of these different lists in the New Testament, and we have these different ideas and everything. And, but it's important that you understand that it's, it's God who decides what he wants to do in and through your life. You don't get to pick your calling. I don't get to pick my calling. Not if I want to be in the will of God. If I want to be in the will of God, then I have to figure out what the will of God is, not say, I assume I already know the will of God, and therefore he needs to conform to what I've already decided. God's gifts, and uh, or rather, God gifts people and fashions a life for them so that they can be a gift to the church because he knows what is needed in a certain time, in a certain place. This is the way he has decided to advance his work on the earth. Now, we may think that there would be a better way to do it. Uh, you know, in general, we kind of look around through church history and say, this, is, this, is this the best way <laughs> to accomplish your cosmic work? And the Lord says, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to use imperfect human beings who are sometimes stumbling their way through life as they seek to walk faithfully with me. And they're going to do it uh, uh, not quite right all the time, but this is the way I want to advance my work in the world. Okay, and he says, and so I'm, I'm going to take you, an individual Christian, and I'm going to prepare good works beforehand for you to walk in. And what that means is that I'm going to give you as a gift to the church in some specific way. Through people like you and me, who he fills up with grace and then tailors to certain good works in a certain time and a certain place among certain people. People who are called and sent and live in the power of his salvation, which operates in love and grace and truth. That's his plan. Here's why God gifts people to the church. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. So you and I, we come to church for a variety of reasons. Uh, And even just biblically, there's a variety of reasons, right? We come to offer worship to God. We come to be encouraged by the company of our spiritual family. But God here says a major reason why you and I come to church is so that we can be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Ministry isn't just something that happens at a church building or on a Sunday or on a Wednesday. It happens through the life of every single Christian who's walking with the Lord. And we need to be equipped 
for that work. Equipped is a rich term. It can mean mended or restored. Outside the New Testament, it was used in medical writings for the straightening or setting of a joint or a broken bone. It describes the preparation of of the weaving of a garment, the warp and the woof. It's this great, great term. It can also be translated as perfected. If you looked at the International Standard Version, you'd see that the word is brought to us there as perfective. Perfected, excuse me. It is absolutely mind-blowing that God uses you and me in his work of perfecting other Christians. We are agents of his sanctification in the lives of others. Right? So we understand if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, if you've been around church a long time, you've probably heard this term sanctification. And it means the process of God making us more like Jesus, right? Conforming us into his image, getting us ready for heaven, as it were, right? Um, and, <clears throat> and it is absolutely mind-blowing that God says, okay, this incredible work I'm doing to conform you into the image of Christ, I'm going to use other members of the church to do that perfecting work in your life, right? So this is one of the reasons why being connected to a local church fellowship is not just a good thing, it is an essential thing. You cannot do this part of Christianity alone. Uh, there, in our culture right now, there's lots of people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I can't do the church, too many hypocrites, too much baggage, so I'm just the church wherever I'm at. I'm, at, I'm the church alone. Hey, you are a member of the church wherever you find yourself, but there are parts of church life that you cannot do unless you are actually connected to a local church fellowship. And we're not saying it has to be our local church fellowship. It's the one that God wants you to go to because there's specific living stones that he wants to knit you with on purpose, because you are tailor-made for the benefit of the church and for the benefit of a local church. That's the whole thing. And so when we say, I'm just the church on my couch, no, not really. You're a Christian and God loves you, but you can't do this part of Christianity alone or in isolation. We need to be equipped for the work of ministry. The term he uses for ministry here is diacona. They're the deacons. All of us. He says, we come to church and we need to be prepared and set straight and mended to do the work of deacons. All of us called to be like Stephen and Phoebe and the others listed in the New Testament. People who had a good reputation and were full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, who proclaimed the word of God boldly, were given special duties of serving those in need in their community. All of us are meant to be growing in that kind of ministry, that kind of faith. Paul says that God gifts each of us to the church so that it can grow and strengthen and develop in these grace-filled ways. Ministry is not about magnifying an individual. It is about church growth, according to Paul and the Holy Spirit. What kind of church growth? Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So this is the goal. That's the goal of church ministry, of church growth. Not a bigger building, not a beefier bank account, Church growth is about the health of the body, capital B, not the number of bodies in seats. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with God adding to the church as he sees fit. What a great phrase in the book of Acts where it talks about they were living out their Christianity, all these different things were happening, and it says, and 
and God added to the church as he sees fit, meaning numerically. But our ministry goal from our side of things is given to us right here in verse 13, unity and faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ and growing into maturity. And we're to measure our church health, our spiritual health, using Christ as the standard, not worldly standards of growth. The goal is that we would be growing into him and that we would be doing it with others. And it takes us back to what Paul said about unity in the previous verses. If I'm not being built up in my faith and my knowledge of God's son, if I'm not maturing, then on some level, the whole body is going to suffer. Maybe in a very significant way, maybe in not so significant a way. In the womb, every single one of us had a hole in between the atria of our heart. And then for the vast majority of us in the room, that closes before you were born. But for some of us, one out of every four, think about that and count the people around you. (laughs) One out of every four of us, that hole did not close. It did not mature the way it was supposed to. Not a big deal until you're me last year and your heart then throws a stroke through there and I have a stroke, which is what happened because that part of my heart had not matured, right? And so, it's, so that's a big deal. And we can probably think of other little things on our body where it's like, hey, this just didn't develop all the way or, you know, I never really grew into how big my feet are or something like that, right? But if I'm not maturing individually, on some level, the whole body is suffering or is set back. So I'm part of the whole, but I'm an individual specific part, a special part. I have this individual duty to to walk with the Lord, a personal walk with the Lord. And as I do that, I not only get filled up with grace and strength, but I then become a beneficial organ in the body of Christ. I become part of the mission to reach unity together with my brothers and sisters. Unity is a term that the book of Acts, or rather reach is a term the book of Acts uses to describe travelers arriving at their destination. And so I become part of the equipping process that God accomplishes through his people one to another. And it cannot be done in isolation. It cannot be done if I detach myself from the assembly of believers. It is done in the body, for the body, by the body, as the grace and power of God unites and infuses us and operates through us together. God has gifted you with different abilities and and different spiritual gifts that we read about in the New Testament. He has carved out a specific personal path for your life that he wants you to discover and walk with him in. But as we've seen here, God has tailored you also as a gift to his church. And he's gone to considerable trouble to install power and purpose in your life, to not only deliver you from sin, but to deliver you as a blessing to his body. And while we recognize that it's all the Lord's doing, you know, it's nothing of us. It's all the Lord's doing. We cultivate humility as we walk with God. It's also important to recognize and understand that you are God's gift to the church. Just like Paul was important to the Ephesians, just like Stephen was important to the Hellenistic widows of Jerusalem, just like Phoebe was important to her church, you are important to the life of the church where God wants you to attach yourself where he wants to knit you together with other stones in a specific time, in a specific place for a specific purpose. And now we get to discover what that is as God pours his grace in and through our lives to save us and so that we can serve others. 